trade market, I'm afraid. Uh, but I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Um, and if you found Hebrews chapter 7, uh, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand to your feet in honor of reading the Word of God. Now we're going to do a much larger portion of Scripture than I, than I typically do uh, tonight. So strap in because we're uh, going to try and cover all of chapter 7 um, tonight. So let's uh, turn our eyes to chapter 7 of Hebrews. And let's see what it has to say. This is the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he, receive, he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gaveth attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. 
For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time that we have weekly just to gather together as your people and look into your word and see what it has to say and see how it is. See how it instructs us. And Father, we pray that you would be here tonight by your Spirit. And that you, Father, ultimately would be our teacher. That you would write your word on our hearts. Show us how it applies to our own life. Show us the things in our own lives that need changing. That we might come into better conformity with your word. And that we might live uh, rightly according to what your word says. So Father, we pray that that you would be here again. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So strap in, folks. This is a long chapter. We're going to get a bird's eye view of some of it, don't worry. Um, one of my favorite kinds of stories to read when I was a kid was detective stories. Now for me, this all started with I believe it was several Encyclopedia Brown books that my mom got for me when I was a kid. And at first I didn't have any idea what this was about. And I don't know if any of you all are familiar with Encyclopedia Brown. I didn't know it at the time, but it's actually kind of an older series. It came out in the early 60s, I think. But Encyclopedia Brown was the, the genius boy detective who would solve mysteries and cases around his neighborhood. And he was even so good that the police department would kind of get his help sometimes to help to help him solve cases around the neighborhood. Um, and as you read the story, you were supposed to try and solve the case along with him, right? And you could read the solution at the end of the story, and usually I didn't get it right. You know, usually I was thinking to myself, oh yeah, why didn't I think of that? But then as I, uh, as I got a little bit older, and I, I, can, I can remember in high school reading some detective stories that were a little more sophisticated, things like Agatha Christie novels and, and stuff like that. But one of the things about detective stories that has always made them so interesting and intriguing to me is that most of the time the solution to the mystery is going to be found in these little details of the story that you weren't paying very much attention to the first time you read through it, right? Um, so maybe it's a, it's a murder mystery story or something and you, you find out at the end much to your surprise that it was actually the milkman who done it. And you weren't suspecting the milkman at all because he only showed up in like one or two scenes and only said, you know, and didn't, and didn't say a whole lot. And so you weren't thinking that he was a very significant character. But by the end of the story, you realized, no, he actually was a very significant character. That's just one of the common features that we see a lot in detective stories that the, the characters who seem least significant turn out in the end to be very significant. Um, and I'm having us think about that, how, how detective stories work, because it seems to me that a lot of times the Bible reads kind of like a detective story in some ways, um, especially whenever we are reading the New Testament in light of 
what the Old Testament says. And we're doing that all the time when we read a book like Hebrews. He is constantly pointing us back to the Old Testament and explaining what the Old Testament meant. So if, if you were to go back and read through the book of Genesis from start to finish, you would eventually get to chapter 14. And in a tiny little section of chapter 14 of the book of Genesis, I'm, I'm literally talking about three verses here, you would read about this guy named Melchizedek that Abraham uh, went to. Abraham had just, had just rescued um, Lot from a number of kings, and he was coming back from that, um, from that, uh, from that time. And he, he paid a visit to, to this guy named Melchizedek, who was priest of the Most High God. And he paid a tithe to, to, to Melchizedek, um, the Bible says. And then Melchizedek blessed Abraham in return. And that's it. And it takes three verses to get through that. And that's, all, that's, all, that's the only narrative that Melchizedek shows up in, in the Bible. He's, he's, he's there, and then, and then he's, he's gone again. And if you didn't have any knowledge of, at all of, of, of the rest of the Bible, you probably wouldn't give a second thought to this guy named Melchizedek, because he seems very insignificant at first. But at the end of the story, so to speak, in the fullness of God's revelation to us in Scripture, we find out that, no, that guy named Melchizedek turns out to be very significant. And he points us to who Jesus is for us, and he teaches us things about Jesus. So that's what's on our plate for tonight. So if I can uh, just draw your attention back to, back to Hebrews chapter 7, and what I originally intended to do for this message was just try to get through half of the chapter um, but as I kept reading it and looking over it, it just seemed like I, I just couldn't find a good stopping point for it. It all kind of hangs together until the, big, until the big payoff at the end of it. So we're going to try to move through the whole thing, but I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights and paraphrase what I think are the, some of the main points of what the writer wants to say to us in chapter 7. Um, so if you look at verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 7, the writer's going to start right off the bat telling us about this guy named Melchizedek and explaining some things that we know about this guy. Uh, so verse 1 says he was king of Salem and he was priest of the Most High God. So he's a priest and he's a king. Now that right there is something that's very unique about Melchizedek because it wasn't normal in the Old Testament for a priest to also be a king. You didn't, you didn't mix those two offices. In fact, it was very frowned upon for a king to try and fulfill the duties of the priest. You might remember King Saul got in trouble for doing that one time. Um, but Melchizedek is unique for the fact that he's a king and he's a priest. And there's nothing wrong or inappropriate about that for him. He's a priest king. And then verse 2 uh, the writer's going to talk about what Melchizedek's name means, literally. Um, it seems to me like in our day, we don't care a whole lot uh, as much about what people's names mean. We tend to kind of just choose names that we like the sound of. But in, in biblical times, the meanings behind names were very important. And it turns out this guy named Melchizedek, um, there's, there's meaning behind his name because his name is a combination of two Hebrew words. The first word is Malek, which means king. And the second word is Tzedek, which means righteousness. You put that together, together you get Melchizedek. So he is literally, just by virtue of what his name uh, means, 
a king of righteousness. But that's not all. Um, the writer also points out that he's, a, he's a, the king of a city called Salem. And a lot of people think that that's actually just an earlier name for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Um, but in, in any case, the, the, the word Salem means peace. It's based on the, it's based on the word shalom, which we're probably uh, more familiar with here. Um, so, so putting all this together then, here's a mysterious guy in the Old Testament who was a priest king, and he was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Now, as Christians, that ought to make us say, hmm... That sounds mighty familiar. Seems like I know somebody else who is a priest king and a king of righteousness and a king of, of peace or a prince of peace, if you will. The Lord Jesus, maybe? And I think the writer of Hebrews would say to us, exactly. As part of what Melchizedek is there for, he's foreshadowing to us in all these different ways the, the person and the work of Jesus. Now verse 3. Here is where the writer's going to say some things about Melchizedek that are frankly kind of weird. Okay, a little bit weird. So verse 3 says this about Melchizedek. He is without father, without mother, without descent or without genealogy, some translations will say, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Hmm. So apparently, Melchizedek didn't have a father, didn't have a mother. His life didn't begin or end. And that's just kind of, I mean, if we just kind of take the bare face value, literal meaning of the text, that's what it would seem uh, to be saying. And so historically, this has led a lot of Christians uh, to believe that Melchizedek was actually a supernatural being of some sort, maybe an, maybe an angelic being. Um, in fact, it was, it was pretty common for Jewish people in the ancient world to believe that Melchizedek was the archangel Michael. But even just a verse like this, what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us as Christians, that has made Christians wonder, who is this guy named Melchizedek? Maybe, maybe he's not just a normal man. Is he some kind of angelic being? Some Christians have even suggested that Melchizedek was an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Himself. That's an intriguing uh, idea, an intriguing thought. Uh, but personally, I'm not sure that I can go along with that view just because of something else that verse 3 says to us. It says that, where he says that Melchizedek is like unto the Son of God, right? or that he resembles the Son of God, I think is what the ESV says there. So it's not that he was the Son of God, but that he resembled the Son of God. And so, okay, what in the world does it mean then that he doesn't have a father, doesn't have a mother, doesn't have uh, a descent, neither beginning of days nor end of life? Well, one thing that I think it could mean is that as far as the record shows to us, he has neither father or mother. In other words, we don't know who Melchizedek's father or mother was. Because here's the thing, when it comes to important people in the Old Testament, just about always, anybody who's anybody in the Old Testament, we're going to know who their parents were. We're going to know where they came from. We're going to know who begot them because they show up in genealogies, right? But here's this guy, Melchizedek, 
who is apparently very important, and yet nevertheless, we don't have a clue who his parents were. He doesn't appear in any genealogy. He just kind of shows up and is there. And we don't read anything about his death. And so in that way, the writer could be saying, he sort of, in a sense, bears a kind of resemblance to the Son of God. No beginning and no end, as it were. So that's, that's at least just another way of possibly reading what the writer says in, in verse 3. But honestly, if you prefer to take... Uh, I mean, I don't know what you've heard about Melchizedek, um, but if you prefer to take the, the view that Melchizedek was supernatural in some form or fashion, then I'm not going to fault you for that. I think it's certainly possible. Um, but I do think I would say that it's, it's not necessarily required by verse 3 for us to think of him as a supernatural um, person. There, there, are some, there are some other ways that we might read that. But And, and so, just something else I'll, I'll throw in here. One of the things about priests in the Old Testament is that they served until the priest died. They served until death. And so this, would, this just would have been something that the people were very accustomed to. I mean, every generation would have to experience this at least once, a changing of the priesthood. But now these Jewish Christians that the writer of Hebrews is writing, writing to are coming to grips with the fact that there will never, ever again be a change in the priesthood. Because now they have something that's far better. Now they have a priest who's, who has an indestructible life, as the writer says later in the chapter. There will never again be another change in the priesthood because they have a priest now who's far, far better, far, far greater than any priest that, that came before. And so all of these things I think the writer is, just, is, is, is presenting to us as just little ways that, the, that this, this person named Melchizedek kind of symbolically foreshadows the person and work of Jesus. He, he whispers Jesus' name, as it were. Now, here's where I'd really like to try and do a flyover of... No, I'm not, not, not going to skip over them, but I'm just going to try to fly over uh, the next 17 verses or so and really pull out what I think are the main points of what the writer wants to say there. And the main thing I think he wants to emphasize through the next 17 verses or so is that Melchizedek's priesthood, this guy named Melchizedek, his priesthood that he had, appointed by God, priest of the Most High God, was actually greater than the Levitical priesthood. And remember, the Levitical priesthood is the one that we read about in the book of Leviticus. Now, I know that Leviticus is one of those books that we tend to not spend a whole lot of time in, um, and it might be that book that you start a sort get, is where you start getting behind in your Bible reading plan once you get to, um, once you get to Leviticus. I know that. But the people that the, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to would have been very familiar with the system of the Levitical priesthood. And they would have known um, that it was only the Levites who could be priests, right? They would have known that. You could only be a priest if you were from the tribe of Levi. But now that kind of creates a problem when we start talking about Jesus as being our high priest, doesn't it? And why is that? Because Jesus doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. What, what tribe does Jesus come from? He's described famously in Revelation 5 as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's the, that's the more kingly line. God doesn't say anything about Judahite 
priest. That, uh, that's, uh, that's not the line that's associated with priesthood. It's the Levites who are associated with priesthood. Now, I've said before that I would be willing to bet that most of us have not spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out just how could Jesus be our high priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi and he's from the tribe of Judah instead. I mean, those kinds of questions really aren't on our theological radar, so to speak. They're just not the kinds of questions we, uh, we ask, right? But those are the kinds of questions that these people would have been concerned with that the writer is writing to. Because remember, these were Jewish believers he was writing to. And so these were the kinds of questions they would have had. And so he met them there and, and, and provided an answer to this question for them. And so, so how is it that Jesus can be our high priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? And the answer is, he's not a priest after the order of Levi or Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a priesthood that's far greater. That's a priesthood that was around far before the whole Levitical system. Melchizedek was, Melchizedek was a priest before it was cool. You know? I mean, his priesthood is greater. And so Jesus is a, is a priest like Melchizedek, in the order of Melchizedek, directly appointed by God and, and independent from the law of Moses and greater than the law of Moses. And he was directly appointed to that, to that position, the writer says, based on the fact that his life is indestructible. Jesus conquered the grave Jesus lives forever. So God says to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. Jesus totally bypasses the, the Levitical standards because he's far greater than all of that. And all of these things are leading the writer up to one basic point that he wants to land on. And I think he makes that point in verse 22. So verse 22 says, by so much or... This means that Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. That's the, that's the main point he, he was driving at the whole time. Jesus is made the surety of a better testament. The ESV says, this makes Jesus the guarantor or the one who guarantees a better covenant. Over and over and over again, the writer of Hebrews makes the point in so many different ways that Jesus is better. I can't think of three words that better summarize and more accurately and appropriately summarize the book of Hebrews than to say Jesus is better. And he's better than that whole Levitical system that these Jewish Christians were accustomed to and that they had known their whole lives. So the writer's saying, don't stay there. Don't, don't, don't stay back in that old system when, when what you have now in Christ is so much better than that so much more superior. Those things were just temporary measures that God had, had, put up for, had, had put in place for a limited amount of time. But what I'm telling you about now is a great high priest who lives forever. And that's the writer's heartbeat in this, in this passage. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of Jesus there, this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So back in the Old Testament, a new priest had to be appointed every time that the old one um, died. But now, 
A priesthood is here that lasts forever. A priest is here who lives forever. Verse 25, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. In other words, Jesus is able to fully save and completely save anyone and everyone who come to God through him. You don't need some, some extra thing added onto it. You don't need these, these, this Levitical law of Moses added onto it. That's done. Jesus is able to save fully to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's really fascinating to me that at the end of this long and technical discourse that we've been looking at about the, the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Levi and how it all relates to the priesthood of Christ. At the end of this long and technical discourse, you know what the writer's basic message is? Come to God through Jesus. That's his basic message. Come to God through Jesus. It's really an evangelistic purpose that he has. He wants to make sure that these people know where salvation comes from, that they know where salvation is found. Now, I have to be honest with you. If I'm, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody out on the street, I am probably not going to do it with a lecture on Melchizedek and Levi and how their priesthoods relate to the priesthood of Christ. I'm probably not going to use that strategy. I'm probably going to use the four spiritual laws or the Evangelcube or something. I'm probably not going to go that route. But that's the route he took because that's where these people were. So he met them where they were. But, but at the end of the day, it's all about come to God through Jesus. That's what it's all about. Come to God through Jesus. It's a timeless message, that basic message of the gospel. And, and yes, times change and societies change and cultures change. But you know what never changes? Come to God through Jesus. It never changes the basic message of the gospel. Now the rest of the chapter, he's really just going to kind of emphasize a lot of the points that, that he's all re-emphasize the points that he's already made. Um, so he says that Jesus is perfect. He's holy. He's blameless. And so that makes him better than any priest that came before. All of those priests back in the Old Testament, before they could ever offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, you know what they had to do? They had to offer sacrifice for their own sins first. Not Jesus. Why? Because He doesn't have any sins to offer sacrifice for. He doesn't have a sin problem. We're the ones with the sin problem. You know what that means? That means when Jesus did what He did on the cross, He was hanging there and going through what He went through entirely for our sake. He didn't have a sin problem of His own. He was hanging up there because of our sin problem. Just consider what a love that is. Consider what a selfless sacrifice that is. Now, I'd like for us to go back as we think about kind of, I'm kind of trying to move into an application section of the sermon and just kind of reflecting on one of the main points that come out of the passage. Um, I'd really like to go back where we just were a second ago, looking at verse 25. And I was reflecting there on this, this truth that we come to God through Jesus. 
Verse 25 is, is where he says that. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him or by Jesus, through Jesus. He makes a similar point in verse 19, I believe. We talks about the better hope that we have by which we draw nigh unto God or other modern, modern versions will say we draw near to God. And I just kept, it just seemed like the, 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 for whatever reason, those words were just pressed on my heart over and over again as I, as I thought about this passage, that we come to God through Jesus. And I just kept thinking about different ways that, that those words might kind of intersect with our own cultural experience of this day and age. So we live in a day and age that really promotes and celebrates the idea of religious pluralism. What I mean is it's basically the idea that, that all of the world's religions are really more or less just different ways of getting up the same mountain. Right? That all of the world's religions are just different ways of getting to the same God. You might go your way, I might go my way, I might go through Jesus, you might go through whatever your religious system is, but we're all headed up toward the same God. This religious pluralism, more or less. Um, and given that that's where we are as a culture, I can promise you that it's not going to be very popular for you to go around saying that Jesus is the only way to God. In fact, you can probably count on being branded as a hateful, intolerant, bigoted, whatever other else word they're using these days to try and slander people like Christians. You can count on getting branded in those ways if you go around saying that Jesus is the only way to God. And a lot of people might even say it's unloving to say things like that and, and therefore somehow unchristian even to say things like that. But... The thing is that when we say that Jesus is the only way to God, we're not saying anything that Jesus himself didn't say. That's exactly what he taught about himself. All I'm doing is just repeating what Jesus taught. He said in John 14, No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think that if we're going to call ourselves any kind of Christian at all, I think we need to be willing to affirm and believe wholeheartedly the things that Jesus taught. As unpopular as it may be. And that's, that's a truth that the writer is bringing out in this passage, I think. That Jesus is the one, the one through whom we draw near to God. I think that this, this is a truth that's pretty relevant to some other aspects of our culture. As well, um, I substitute teach at the middle school and the high school fairly regularly. Um, and every morning we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Right? And I'm actually kind of surprised that still in the public school system, they include the phrase, one nation under God. It's surprising to me that that's, that that's still a thing. But it is, at least in Baker County, I don't know. Um, but we still say one nation under God. Now, not everybody still includes this phrase. Whenever they, whenever they say the pledge or, 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 or make reference to the pledge, I was, I see, I saw a, uh, it, there was, it, I, I can't remember her name, but it was a female politician of some sort who was, who was liberal, and it was back in the, back in the election, the political season, the political race, and 
she was introducing Hillary Clinton, and um, so she was giving a little introduction speech for Hillary Clinton. And in the, in the course of her introduction speech, she said something like, and we are one nation, under, uh, 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 indivisible, uh, with liberty and justice for all, right? I mean, it, it took a lot of effort, but she was able to successfully bypass that whole under God part, right? So there's already enough controversy, really, just about whether or not something like the pledge should include the, the words under God. There's already enough controversy just about that. But could you imagine the uproar if the pledge was going to be changed to say something like one nation under Christ? Oh my goodness. That would cause a whole other level of outrage. I mean, you just, you just wouldn't go there, Right? And it seems to me like maybe, maybe a lot of people who are okay with the pledge saying one nation under God wouldn't be so okay with the pledge saying one nation under Christ. I'm not sure I get that. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood because I'm not trying to make a political point here. I'm not trying to say the pledge needs to be changed in that way or anything like that. But the point I'm, the point I'm trying to, to emphasize is that there's one God and He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. See, Christians don't worship and honor some kind of vague, generic deity, some kind of generic God who fits in nicely with multiple faith systems. That's not the, that's not the, that's not the God that we worship. And just because somebody is a believer in God and just because somebody believes even in this, this country as being one nation under God doesn't mean that person knows God. Doesn't mean that person is a Christian. We come to God through Jesus. You worship and honor God through Jesus or you don't worship and honor Him at all. You come to God through Jesus or you don't come to God. Jesus said, whoever rejects me, rejects who? The one who sent me. And again, just to be clear, even though the, 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 the pledge doesn't explicitly make reference to Christ, I still think that we, can recite, that we can say the pledge and in our hearts be acknowledging the lordship of Jesus. But a lot of people don't do that, I'm afraid. I think that for a lot of people, the God of the pledge is kind of a vague and generic God. Who, who, who fits in nicely with, with multiple faith systems. Not a God who necessarily has anything to do with Jesus, per se. And I don't think that God gets any honor from a pledge that is, that is said from that kind of mindset. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. It's a package deal, right? It's a package deal. You submit to God through Jesus, so you don't submit to Him at all. So we can reflect on that truth in a lot of different ways, I think. I think it's relevant also to our prayer lives. Um, just think about prayer for a minute. Just the amazing privilege that we have to enter into the throne room of grace, as the writer has already talked about previously. To enter into the throne room of grace and make our request known to God. And He hears our prayers. And He answers our prayers. What an amazing thing that is. We have to remember 
that all of that is possible only through Jesus. Only through Him uh, do we have any access at all into the throne room. Um, and what, what's, what's probably the most common phrase that we tag on to the end of our prayers? We usually close out prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, right? In Jesus' name. And what is it that we're saying when we say that? What is it that we're trying to communicate? What we're saying is that all of the, all of the requests that have been made, we make and we, we bring to God only through Jesus. He's the, he's the only reason we even have the ability to, make, to, to bring these requests before God. And unfortunately, though, I think a lot of times we get so used to just kind of tagging that phrase on the end of our prayers that we, uh, we stop giving a lot of thought to it, and it just kind of becomes an empty, an empty phrase. But it's not an empty phrase. It's not an empty phrase. We don't have the right to enter into the throne room just by virtue of the fact that we're human beings. We only had that right because of what Jesus has done and who He is for us as our great high priest. And I, I, just, I just think that our prayers ought, to, ought to, to show an awareness of that and demonstrate an awareness of that and an, an acknowledgement of, of that. Not that we always have to say, in Jesus' name, every time we pray, or it's not valid. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but we've got to be aware of that, that it's only through Jesus that we draw near to God, only through Him. So I think it's relevant to the way that we pray. There's all kinds of ways we can, we can reflect on that truth, that we come to God through Jesus. But at the end of the day, I think that for the writer of Hebrews, it all comes down to this question. Do you know God through Jesus? Do, I, th- I think he was thinking about that in terms of his, his original readers. He wanted to know that they knew where salvation was found. He wanted to know that they had this great salvation. And so again, it's, a, it's an evangelistic heartbeat, an evangelistic purpose, I think, in, in what he's saying. He wants to make sure his readers are crystal clear on this, that they know where salvation's found. And it's not through religious observances. And it's not through some Levitical priestly system that they had known all their lives. It's not through any of that stuff. Salvation is through Jesus. Uh, I've heard it said that the hardest thing about uh, getting people saved, so to speak, the, the, the hardest thing about getting people saved is first getting them lost. In other words, before anybody can have any interest at all in salvation, they pretty much have to have some idea of why they need salvation. They have to have an idea of the condition that they're in, why they need saving. They have to understand their condition. So just to say it another way, the good news is only going to be heard as good news if it's understood in light of what the bad news is. And the bad news is that no human being, no human being outside of the Lord Jesus, no human being measures up, even begins to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. That's what people need to realize about their condition. No human being measures up to God's standard of righteousness. And you know what that standard is? Perfection. We don't talk like that a lot, I'm afraid. But that's the way Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you must be perfect. Wait, how perfect do we have to be? As your Father in heaven is perfect. That perfect. 
And it was teachings like that that Jesus gave on a regular basis that on other occasions would cause the disciples to finally say, Lord, who then can be saved? And I love the way that, that Jesus responded on that occasion. He said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And how is it that God made that seemingly impossible salvation possible? How did He make it possible? By sending His only begotten Son into this world to pay the penalty for our sins, to die on the cross, to be raised again and seated at the right hand of God. It's through Him. It's through that Son. It's through Jesus that we draw near to God. And that's how God's standard of perfect righteousness is achieved. Because what happens? Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to you. And you're seen as being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You have the righteousness of another. And we're talking about the king of righteousness. The Melchizedek, if you will. The king of righteousness. Par excellence. None greater. None more righteous. I really think that, that this was the, the main purpose of what the, the writer of Hebrews had in mind uh, whenever he was writing these things in chapter 7. He wanted to make it crystal clear to them where true salvation is found. He wanted to make sure that they knew it's only found in Jesus. And he wanted to make sure they knew and understood that this new covenant that Jesus instituted is far and away greater than all of, all of the others that came, that came before so, I mean, the writer took up a lot, of, a lot of space. He spilled a lot of ink writing about this guy named Melchizedek and all these ins and outs of priesthood that kind of make, have a way of making our heads spin as, as modern-day Christians. But at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. Amen? It's all about Jesus, who He is for us. Let's pray together as we uh, move into a time of response now. Father, thank You so much for your son Jesus. Thank you for what he means for us. Thank you for the great salvation that's been 